0: Wow. I'm going to sing like that in heaven. (laughs) Oh, the words of that song. And that's, thank you very, 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 very much. And uh, any, you know what, anytime you feel like standing, I just commend you for doing that, even if nobody else does. Um, It's always, if you feel that, just do it. and, uh, and if you see me stand sometime, don't feel like you got to do it if I do it, all right? I mean, you might not feel like it. I might be the only one standing, so that's okay too, all right? Um, hey, I, I just wanted to uh, um, thank John Alford. I, you know, sometimes we, don't really underst- we can't understand what it takes to make something happen, and I think the website's a great example of that. Um, John did things, and Lorinda Porter, in working with him, did things that saved this church thousands of dollars because of the extra hours they put in working. And uh, where others may be paid to have something done, they did it. And, uh, and they have both the skill and the expertise and the willingness. And I just think they did an awesome job with that. Um, and I think we're all going to appreciate it for, for many, many reasons in the, in the years to come. Uh, As long as, well, they they always change, don't they? So um, I'm sure we'll be changing that again. It was fun. After first service, so many people thought it was just an uncanny resemblance between um, myself and Jeff and and Brad Pitt and George Clooney. they just (laughs) amazed, you know? Um, And I just said, well, which one was which? And they said, well, you were like both, you know? (laughs) So... Anyway, just makes you feel so good. <laughs> okay. One of the realities of modern life is the instability of the world we, we all live in. We see it everywhere. Political, economic. I mean, all you have to do is read today's newspaper. Listen to the news yesterday. Uh, uh, instability and... In, and some of our most basic institutions, marriage and the family. You know, that, that thing of stability where, you, you know, um, what you've always counted on, uh, you can count on in the future, you can count on tomorrow. That's, that's, that's kind of hard to find these days, you know? The truth is, it's one of the few things you can be sure of, it seems right now, is that there are a few things you can be sure of, you know. It's that, that kind of a deal. And, and we know there's reasons for it, and technological, sociological, I mean, just a lot that goes into it. And we're not going to go into that, but the fact is you and I live in a world that is really in so many ways very different from the world of even a, a generation ago. And, you know, you think about it, most people most times uh, lived for the most part of their life in the same place. And they knew the same people and they... Many many uh, very often, people would have the same career their entire life, and uh, that 's not so true anymore and I think a great example of, of that is uh, uh, Becky 's parents and my parents becky 's mom and dad farmed the the same farm for all sixty five years of their married life and you know Becky 's dad died last year, and her mom still is uh, off to farm in the winter, but back again as soon as she can uh, in April and The fun thing about that is that uh, that farm was just one mile from the farm Becky's mom grew up in and just three miles from the farm her dad grew up in. Uh, on. You know, so it's, you, know, that's, you don't have that so much anymore. And my own mom and dad, they, they had, for their entire farming career, uh, farmed two farms, and uh, my, th- that, the farm they farmed was just ten miles from the farm my dad grew up on. And, and then when my grandfather retired, my, my dad bought that farm, and he farmed that farm to the day day he retired. I mean, there's a lot of stability in that. But even more significant than the stability of where they lived and who they knew and what they did is the stability of the, of the moral climates in which they lived. Back, back at that time, you know, you could pretty much count on that your neighbors, the, the people lived around you would believe the same things you believed, would have the same values they had, and they would support you you know, uh, what you would try to instill within your kids, you could count on the community at large supporting that for the most part. Very different from the world in which you and I are living in right now. Through this, we're living in a world where what people believe and the values that they hold dear are in a constant change of, you know, constant flux. It's, and, 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 and if you think about it, there's so many dimensions to this lack of stability in our, in our world today and... And we can spend the rest of this time, we can spend all day talking about this. But we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is see how you and I can live with with a strong sense of peace in the midst of this world, a rapidly changing and a very unstable world. I love scripture and here we are again today and we find that the spirit of God shows us This is what Paul wrote in the first nine verses of the fourth chapter of Philippians. And it's a passage that we come to this morning. If you you remember in this series, I've talked a bit about cruise ships and battleships. And remember that whole thing about it's very important for us to know what kind of a ship we're on as followers of Christ. That we're not on a cruise ship. We're not here on this earth just to have a good time and with everybody serving us. Instead, we're on a battleship. We're on a battleship. And we've got a mission that God's... God's God's given to us. But thinking about, about ships, did you know that ships and airplanes have something in common? Do you know that? Yeah, great. Do you know what it is? Do you know what they have that's in common? A stabilizer. In fact, they have more than one. stabilizer. See? So let's, you know, and, and here's the deal. Here's the deal with this, okay? If a vessel of any kind is, is, is gonna navigate through, through a, a very unstable environment, that th- it's absolutely critical for them to be able to have these stabilizers. Now again, you know, an ocean is certainly a very unstable environment and so, so is the, you know, the air up there, you know, thousands and thousands of feet. Ships need stabilizers to counteract the turbulence that's inevitable in an ocean. And airplanes need them for the same reason. I mean, have you ever been on a plane where you've been reminded more than once, keep your seatbelt on, and, and if, the, if the plane is going to pr- approach turbulence, the captain will will you know forewarn everybody about that so we don't get all freaked out from it, you know? Here's, here's what stabilizers look like on a ship. I'd never seen this before. On, on, in fact, I never even knew it. Uh, that depending on the size of the ship, you have the size of the stabilizers, and so it's those things. They're just below the waterline, and they, they, they come out on both sides of the ship, and they're like uh, along along the ship. So it's not just one in the front, there's several of them. And um, uh, let, let me show you stabilizers on a plane. There's actually two different kinds. They're vertical ones and horizontal s- stabilizers. that The the vertical stabilizers are are placed at the back of the plane, or if the wings sweep back quite a bit, they can be placed on the ends of the the large wings of of that plane. And what they do is they keep a plane from bobbing around right to left, right to left. Okay. The horizontal stabilizer is placed at uh, at the rear, like we see right here, or at, at, the, at the front of, of an airplane. Um, and went, they're what keep a plane from bobbing up and down, bobbing up and down. So you want, you want to fly a plane or you want to be in a ship that's got a, a stabilizer because the, the stronger the turbulence, the more these stabilizers are needed. It's true for ships and it's true for, for airplanes. But you know what? It's also true for you and me. You and I need a stabilizer in our life. And the stronger the turbulence of the world that you and I are traveling through, the the more intense life becomes for us, the greater the importance of, of you and I having this stabilizer in our own lives. So let me ask you, are you facing some strong winds in your life these days? Have you had times where you feel like the waves that come in life are going to absolutely overwhelm you? If you're going through this right now, what I want to tell you is what Paul shows us in these verses today can make all the difference in the world for you. And if you're here today and you're, you're saying, well, you know what Steve, life's really, it's a pretty clear sail for me right now. It's flying really good. I don't really have any problems in my life right now. I just got to tell you, if you don't have any problems now, your life's not over. Okay? I mean, I hate to tell you that. So what you got to do with what I'm talking about today, if you're not facing anything right now that's big and hard, what you got to do is, what I'm talking about this morning Put it up here in your mental file so that you can take it out and you can use it. You might need it this week. Who knows? You and I have two reasons to listen carefully to what Paul says in these nine verses. And the first reason is that the Spirit of God guided him. This is the Word of God that we're looking at this morning. And so it's absolutely incredible wisdom that God's God's giving to us. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is that Paul Paul speaks from experience. If there's anybody who's had a turbulent life, Paul's had it. Very turbulent. In a letter he wrote to another church, a, a church in Corinth, Paul gave them and gives us a bit of insight into how much turbulence he had in his own life because he was, he was so committed to bringing the gospel to other people. And I, I, I remember the first time this passage just like, uh, like, yeah, I went like, man, this, this guy is committed. This is what he writes. He said, I've been in prison. I've been flogged. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've been... Beaten with 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I once spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on, on the move. I've, I've been in danger from rivers and bandits. I've labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. it Sounds pretty turbulent, doesn't it? I don't know how you could have a life more intense and challenging than this. And at the time Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians, he's he's in a prison with a death sentence hanging over him. I mean, he's experienced about every kind of turbulence a person could experience. And through it all, what we discover about Paul is that he's a rock. I mean, it's a fact. He was a rock. I mean, Paul was like that. Wave after wave after wave. Constant turbulence. And he was a rock. He, he stood for, firm with a, a, amazing peace and joy. I mean, you just see that written all the way through the book of Philippians. In fact, you see it in everything you wrote. And so we ask ourselves, how did this happen? You know, I mean how is it possible for Paul to be a rock in the worst of circumstances? And the answer is that Paul Paul had a stabilizer. <laughs> and I'm so glad that he didn't keep it to himself, but he brought it to us. He tells us what it is in the passage we're looking at today. And so here's what we're going to see today. We're going to We're going to see this stabilizer. We're going to see Paul gives us a principle by which to to go through all the circumstances of our lives to to stay stable. And and then he gives us three disciplines for applying this principle to our lives. Okay? Now, let me just say this um, before we go any further. What I discovered in this passage has meant so much to me and and the truth of it to Becky as we continue to deal with the hardest experience we have had to face in our life. Some of you know that our son Greg died five months ago, September 3rd of last year. So we no longer have Greg with us. And Becky and I can tell you from experience that what Paul writes is true. It's true. It's made, it's made all the difference for us in being able to stand firm these last five months. And, and I just so much want this for you if you don't have it. I want you to be able to have the same stabilizer in your life. I, I want you to have it so that you can have that that same peace and that same joy that the Apostle Paul had as he went through so much turbulence and so much hard stuff in his own life. So, that being said, here's the principle, okay? A principle that Paul used to deal with uh, pressure and change and stress and uh, turbulence. Here it is. Use big truth, God's truth, eternal truth in little places, in big places, and everything between. Go to the little and mundane circumstances and always see those things in the context of the whole sweep of eternity and the big issues. Do this with every circumstance in your life, all the way to the biggest, to the most difficult, the most impactful, and challenging, the hardest times. Things you go through. You speak truth. Use God's truth. Use eternal truth on every circumstance you go through life. Let's see this. What we discover right away in chapter four is that Paul begins to unpack this big truth for us by showing us that what we got to do is we can't stay in chapter four, but we got to go back to chapter three. To find it. And so, here's the statement. He writes this in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. There's there's two reasons that you and I, from what Paul writes in this verse, should go back into into chapter 3 to discover this principle. The first reason is the word, therefore. Therefore. Whenever you see the word, therefore, in Scripture, what it is saying to us, just that word itself is saying, before you can understand what's going to be said, you've got to go back to what's already been said. So that's the first reason. The second reason is what Paul writes in that verse in the second half of it. So let's, let's, let's look at that again. He said, therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord Dear friends, the, the key word there is the word that's under, underlined, the word that, word that. The word that. It's, it refers to all of what Paul wrote in chapter 3, what Jeff and I have been talking about for the last two weeks, and what Paul sums up at the end of chapter 3 with this statement in verse 20 and verse 21. And so he, he writes this, he said, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. (laughs) Wow, Paul, Paul declares that you and I are citizens of heaven. Right now we are. This is something waiting to happen. It's a done deal. In fact, it's such a done deal that it's documented up in heaven. Our names are written down in heaven. Paul, Paul, Paul actually mentions this in, 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 in verse 3 where he, 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 he names some of the people that he's talking to here specifically. And at the end of, uh, of verse 3, he, he said this, whose names are in the book of life, are in the book of life. So, Right now, your name, my name, if you're a follower of Christ, it's documented up in heaven. We don't need passports to go to heaven. We're citizens of heaven right now. I think that's, I think that's awesome. Anybody else? All right. Good. All right. Paul also points to the return of Jesus Christ. And what he tells us is that when jesus christ returns he's going to take these bodies of ours that if we if we've died we're going to be resurrected if we haven't died we're just going to be caught up to meet him when he returns and and in a in a you know uh, shorter than a second of time which is going to transform our bodies so that they're like his glorious eternal body and and again everybody this isn't an if, this isn't a maybe. This is something that's really going to happen because Jesus has got the power to make it happen. I like that too. How about you? Huh? I mean, that's, yeah. So Paul says this. And then in the next sentence, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he said, that, that, that truth is how you stand firm. Firm. That's big truth, big truth, big truth, God's truth, eternal truth, us being citizens of heaven, you and me transformed so that these bodies of ours become eternal, glorious bodies, bodies like that of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get bigger than this. And Paul himself lived in a, a rough world, a tough world, a hard world. He went through a lot of suffering and turbulence in his own life. And he, and he knows the Philippians were going through it. And Paul knows that all of us are going to go through this. And he wants us to know this eternal truth because it's in knowing it that we're able to stand firm. It's our stabilizer. It's our stabilizer in a very unstable world. This amazing truth that as followers of Christ, we're destined for a world that is eternally secure and eternally good. A world that doesn't just simply stay the same. It gets better and stronger and newer and more fulfilling and, you know, joy-filled every single second forever. All because of who's there. And all because of coming back to get us, Jesus Christ. You know what? Knowing our son Greg is already experiencing this has meant everything to Becky and me. And knowing that someday we're going to share it with him, i got to tell you, it has made all the difference for us these last, these last five months. It's, it's our stabilizer. And Paul's saying, "There's a place like this, and we're going to be there forever. And there's a person like this, and we're going to be like him forever." And he's saying, "But you know what? The world in which we're living right now—it's just a blip in eternity. Just a little blip." Now he says all of this, and I think you're going to love this. He says all of this, and he, and then he immediately applies it to a quarrel between two of his friends in this church, two of his women friends, co-workers in the church in Philippi. And so he writes this in verse 2. He said, I, I plead with you, dear, and I, I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Do you see what he's doing? Paul doesn't deal with even the smallest problem, the most mundane situation, without putting it into the context of all of redemptive history. I think this is absolutely powerful, everybody. It's an example of how to apply this principle. That's what Paul's doing to Eude and Sintiki. He's asking them to remember the big truth and what really matters. He's saying to these women, man, remember who you are. You're citizens of heaven and remember where you're going. Remember the glory that's yours in eternity. And remember what Jesus Christ has done to make this all possible for you. Remember all of that. He said, and you know what? It'll just, it'll profoundly change how you see the problem you're having with each other. And how you deal with it. That's what Paul does to everything. And it's why he's a rock. Every moment in Paul's life is about eternity. Every incident is about God and, and eternity and grace and truth and heaven. And, and, and you might be sitting here and you might be saying to yourself, wow, that's intense. He's bringing out the big gun on these two women. Yeah, he is. But here's the deal it works. It works, everybody. It's the single most powerful and effective stabilizer that you and I could ever have. And so what is so important for us to do is put this front and center in our lives. The big truth. We're citizens of heaven. (laughs) We're eternal. We're eternal. Paul then gives uh, three disciplines. By which to apply this stabilizer in our life. And I think each one of them are extremely important. And it seems like they build on each other. The first one is the discipline of evenness of temper. The second one is the discipline of prayer. And the third one is the discipline of thought. So first of all, the discipline of evenness of temper. Where you center your circumstances in Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes this in verse 4. and verse 5 he said rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near, the Lord's near. It's um, one of those places where it's tra- um, challenging to translate the Greek word into English, and the NIV Bible, the one I read from, translates it as gentleness, Your Bible might have the word patience. Or another translation is forbearing spirit. Or another one might be reasonable. It's interesting. The literal Greek for this word is is this. It's radical evenness of temper. Radical evenness of temper. (laughs) And Paul, Paul used this word to show the people involved in this conflict... How they should respond to one another. They're to show a radical, a God-inspired, off-the-charts, awesome evenness of temper toward each other. And the reason they're to do this is because they know more important than things going their way is how they honor Jesus Christ by how they deal with it. Their conflict. See, I know this is true because Paul points to this by Bookending this word gentleness, evenness of temper, with two references to Jesus Christ. The book bookends it with Jesus. Look at, look at this. The, first of all, uh, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. That's how he started it. And then after he said, let your gentleness be evident to all, he said, the Lord's near. The Lord's near. It's so profound. Okay? You take this same word gentleness evenness of temper and you put it up against the hard times in your life those times when bad things are happening to you and you respond with an evenness of temper i got to tell you everybody it will strengthen you and it will help you and it'll help everybody else around you and it's it's not that we deny our disappointment and our sadness No, no. I mean, I know that from experience. (laughs) Dumbest thing Becky and I could ever do is deny that we're disappointed. I mean, that's not even a that word doesn't even come close to what we feel, or that we're sad. But we also don't react in a way that's destructive. Destructive to ourself and destructive to others. We understand what Paul is saying. It's so important that we have an evenness of temper. And you know what? It, it's not that God can't handle our anger because God can. And, and you go through that anger. Why well, I tell you, you do. It's just that we don't let our anger take control. Where we become bitter toward God and bitter toward life. And again, the reason we do this is because we know more important than anything else is that we are honoring our Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of it all. So let me ask you. Let me ask you, are you, are you living with this radical evenness of temper? We're honoring Jesus Christ. I mean, in every circumstance in your life, having this gentleness, this ...reasonableness, this patience, this radical evenness of temper. Are you having it in every circumstance of your life? Because Jesus Christ, honoring Jesus Christ is more important to you than anything. That's the first discipline. The second discipline is the discipline of prayer... ...where you receive circumstances through the wisdom of God. Paul Paul writes in verse 6 and verse 7, two of the most familiar verses in the Bible... He said, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and and the God of peace which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wonderful statement. But what we can't miss here, everybody, is that the, the, the thing here is that Paul doesn't just simply say pray. He doesn't just say pray. He says that you and I are, he's 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 directing us to pray a a particular kind of prayer. He says to pray with thanks. With thanks. And we might we might say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, how can I be thankful before I know how God's going to answer my prayer? And you know what? You're right on to the point. That's the point Paul's making. The point Paul's telling us, making, he says, When you pray, you thank God ahead of time for the entire range of possible responses. You do this because it's the single most important answer to dealing well with any problem you face. In life. You envision all the possible things that could happen, and you thank God for all of them ahead of time, trusting in the loving wisdom of God. That's what Paul's saying. And when you and I do that we are affirming one of the most famous verses, probably a verse used more often than any other verse in the Bible. Anybody have a guess? It's found in the 8th chapter of Romans. It's verse 28, yes. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. You see, the thing we got to understand is that that includes all everything the hardest times that come in our life because we're living in an imperfect world I mean, this is a tragic, this is a broken world where a lot of bad things happen. But in the midst of this, what God is telling us is is this wonderful truth about God that God takes even the bad stuff, the hard stuff, and God uses it for our good. The best good of all being that you and I... Well, it's right in the next verse, verse 29 in Romans. Romans 8, you got verse 28, and then you got verse 29, and it's this. It says... For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any better than being like Jesus Christ. And there's nothing about this that doesn't make sense. It's perfectly coherent. If there's a God and we got every reason to believe there's a God, it just figures that you and I are not going to know everything. (laughs) You see, everybody, uh, we know no more of the big picture of our lives, God's plan for our life, than a four year old would know the big picture of his or her life. Why it is what we do for them that we do for them as parents. A child, a four year old, can't understand that. And the distance between us and God is far greater than the distance between a four-year-old child and his or her parents. You see, the truth is, much pain and suffering is inexplicable to us. And so Paul's saying there's a God who knows so much more than we do. And if we're wise in our prayer, we'll seek to understand what's happening in our lives through the truth of God's, God's wise love. God's loving wisdom. For example, okay. For example, you're suffering and you're going through a really hard time. You are suffering. You know what we got to do? We got to see it through the cross of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, I think of the disciples. Here, here's how this truth comes to us, okay? The disciples see Jesus Christ arrested and they run away and they see him crucified and they're still hiding because what they're saying to themselves is, how could any good come out of this? See, they didn't realize that Jesus Christ dying on the cross was the love of God, the wisdom of God at its absolute best. I mean, look at what it did for humanity. What it can do for you and me. So here's how this discipline works. Each time suffering comes away, comes into your life, you don't run away from it. You don't want to run away from God saying, what possible good could God bring out of this? Instead, you stand in it. You stand in it and you say, Lord, I don't know how you're working this. Lord, I don't understand this. But I thank you ahead of time for whatever you're going to do in my life through it. Boy, Beck and I have had to do that these last five months. So here's my question, okay? Do you see yourself as a child when it comes to the hard things of life? Are you trusting God is wise and loving? Are you, are you seeing all the circumstances of your life through the, through the wise love of God? Are you, are you seeing this by, by offering all your petitions to him? Thankful prayer. Here's the third discipline. It's a, it's a discipline of thought where you center your thoughts on what strengthens you. I mean... Again, another very familiar verse, but I've, I, honestly, I've never seen it like I've seen it this week. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, and whatever is pure, and whatever is lovely, and whatever is admirable, if, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. One of the things that I've learned about myself is that I can let my mind go wherever I want it to go. I can go as negative as anybody. I can, you know, or I can go positive. I can think stupid, dumb things. I can fill my mind with lies and stupidity. I mean, I can do it. I can do it as good as the next guy. I have a choice what I'm going to put into my mind, and I have a choice of how I'm going to respond. The choice I know I must make is to fill my mind with what's good, and with what's right, and with what's true. And that's what Paul is saying to us here. He's saying, when you're in the hard times of your life, don't go negative, go positive. Go with what will build you up and not tear you down. Go with it and it will make you better and it will make everybody around you better. Now, to sum it up, and I love it, verse 9, found something I've never seen before. Paul said, what have you learned or received or heard from me or seen in me? Put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. You know what Paul's doing here? Man, he's stepping out. He's being so bold. You know what he's saying to these people? Do what I do. Do what I do. And he could say it because he's lived it. He's experienced it. He's been a rock in front of these people. And friends, this is is one of those times when I can preach a sermon and I can say to all of you, do what I do. Because these last five months, Beck and I have walked through the fire. We have been in probably as unstable an environment as anybody can be in to lose a son, to lose your child. And Becky would stand up next to me, shoulder to shoulder with me this morning, and she would say, the stabilizer works. Eternal truth works. Big truth works. That we're citizens of heaven. That we're eternal. That someday our bodies are going to be transformed into the glorious body of Jesus Christ. We'll say, it works to know that, to have that stabilizer in our life. And we would say, those disciplines, they work. Boy, if you've come here this morning and and you don't have the stabilizer, I sure want you to have him, because you see, he's got a stabilizer. He's got another name. Any guesses? Jesus Christ. He's the stabilizer. He's the rock. He's a really big rock that we can build our lives out and we'll never be disappointed. And I just want to offer you t- to you this morning that as Rob comes and we sing this closing song, you can have a conversation with the stabilizer, with Jesus Christ. You can say to him, I want you to be my savior, to come into my life and be my rock that I can build my life on. Okay? Let I mean, you just have that conversation and you become a child of God, okay? Let's stand together as we sing.